Welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals and places mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of part two of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, Crazy Horse. Now let's return to part two of our story about Crazy Horse. Custer's strategy, relying on his own success at the Washita and other battlefield experience, was simple. He divided his 12 companies into three units. Three companies commanded by Major Marcus Reno would attack the encampment from the south. Three would be commanded by Captain Frederick Benteen, held in reserve to pursue any subsequent advantage, and five units would be led by Custer himself, attacking the village from the north. One unit would be held behind to customarily protect the regiment wagon train of material and ammunition. Reno's attack with approximately 175 troopers began at 3 p.m. Initially causing the desired chaos, the sheer number of warriors in the vicinity quickly brought it to a halt. From a defensive position, Reno's men fired volleys that penetrated the numerous teepees of the encampment, alerting even more inhabitants of the attack. As warriors like Crazy Horse methodically prepared to join the battle, other chiefs, like Sitting Bull in his mid-forties and too old for combat, participated in organizing an orderly withdrawal of women and children away from potential danger. With every minute, the sheer numbers of native warriors increased, and forced a retreat of the attackers into a protective area of trees and shrubs near the Little Bighorn River. Momentarily indecisive, the vast majority of natives hesitated at the edge of the timber until the appearance of Crazy Horse and several other warriors on horseback. Plunging toward the Federal line, Crazy Horse yelled for an all-out attack with the word Hokahe, the Lakota equivalent of Go For It, Reno attempted to organize a defense, but was panicked when his native interpreter and scout, Bloody Knife, was hit in the head with a bullet, killing him instantly and spraying the major with blood and gray matter. As overwhelming amounts of warriors poured into the area, Reno's improvised retreat across the river became a frantic scramble for survival. Native accounts of the battle described the ensuing slaughter as similar to a buffalo hunt. Soldiers either picked off by rifle fire as they attempted to swim across the river or brought down off of their horses and killed before they even reached the water. Several times, Crazy Horse wielded his war club, a sharpened rock attached to a polished stick, killing any soldier he came across. Still, Reno and much of his detachment were able to scramble up the bluffs onto the eastern side of the river and higher ground a natural defensive position that saved the remainder of his unit. There, he was reinforced by Benteen on a hill that today bears Reno's name. Less than an hour after the attack began, it was now successfully repulsed. 
the surviving soldiers pinned down defensively. From the same high ground on the east side of the river, Crazy Horse was able to observe the second column under Custer's command, making his way towards the north side of the village. Although Custer's mindset and strategy is still disputed almost 150 years later, his aggressive approach might have been prompted from the clearly visible throngs of non-combatants rapidly heading west from the village. Unaware of the massive threat in his path, Custer sent two messengers in search of Benteen's column, urging him to hustle up and help him attack the village. The second, an Italian immigrant named John Martin, a.k.a. Giovanni Martini, left at 2.45, carrying a scribble on a piece of paper that read, quote, Benteen, come on, big village, be quick, bring packs, P.S., bring packs. But Benteen, on his way to rejoin Custer, heard the gunfire from Reno's retreat and headed rapidly in that direction. By the time he arrived and observed his colleague's dire situation, he focused on stabilizing the hilltop and reinforcing the clearly overwhelmed Reno, who also happened to be his superior officer. Eventually, when the sound of gunfire came from Custer's assault, a half-hearted attempt was made to join the attack on the village, but the observation of hundreds of native warriors heading in the direction of Reno Hill was enough to convince the Reno-Benteen contingent that a retreat to high ground was the only option for survival. It is also possible that this caution was disingenuous. Benteen was also known to dislike Custer, having been present at the Washita and angered at how some of his fellow soldiers were abandoned. Custer was on his own. His initial strategy involved an attack on the northern edge of the encampment, splitting his companies into two units commanded by Miles Keogh and George Yates, with Custer retaining overall command. This dual assault followed natural ravines in an attempted crossing of the Little Bighorn but Custer quickly ran into the same predicament as Reno. He also ran into Crazy Horse, as well as another native column led by the Ungpapa warrior chief, Crow King. By 435, Crazy Horse had traversed the two miles from the vicinity of the Reno skirmish and was now organizing a response to Custer's aggression. The Ungpapa and Cheyenne contingent would confront the Yates column and quickly drive it backwards in retreat, while Crazy Horse led a one-and-a-half-mile ride of the Oglalas, which forded the Little Bighorn River at a spot known as Deep Ravine, and then attacked the Custer Keogh Battalion on its right rear flank. Both battalions would eventually retreat to a spot known as Calhoun Hill. They would be surrounded by the two separate native columns, Crazy Horse leading a looping and circling movement from the northwest, Crow King pressing the attack from the south. Here, the first of many desperate attempts to regroup and repulse native attacks would result in flight and subsequent attempts at defense. Crazy Horse personally led the attack that wiped out Miles Keogh's I Company, the warrior's brave run actually penetrating the company's skirmish line and splitting it in two. Inspired, dozens of other warriors attacked killing Keogh and most of his men before they could escape to Custer's final location. Four decades later, Waterman, one of the few Arapaho fighting alongside the Lakota, commented, Crazy Horse was the bravest man I ever saw. He rode closest to the soldiers, yelling to his warriors. All the soldiers were shooting at him, but he was never hit. Although Custer's command is traditionally believed to have been wiped out on high ground now known as Custer Hill, 
how and exactly where the U.S. detachment and Custer met their end is still a subject of academic debate. Native descriptions indicate that the entire secondary battle took little more than an hour, and the last surviving troops were overwhelmed by a final charge of warriors, the conflict now a desperate hand-to-hand -hand struggle in which soldiers had no time to reload and natives relied on war clubs and hatchets to attack and then kill. Modern analysis indicates a final breakout attempt of two dozen men who were trapped in a nearby canyon and then finished off. Several warriors claim credit for killing Custer, but as one native participant eventually stated, if we could have seen where each bullet landed, we might have known. But hundreds of bullets were flying that day. All of Custer's 200 men were killed, their bodies stripped, looted, and horribly mutilated, many by native women before the battle even concluded. Among the dead were Custer's brothers, Tom and Boston, his brother-in-law, James Calhoun, and Custer's 18-year-old nephew, Audie Reed, who tagged along for a summer adventure, Scout Mitch Boyer, who warned of impending disaster, and even a Bismarck, North Dakota newspaper man named Mark Kellogg. Realizing that they had completely eliminated the Custer threat, the Native War Party then turned its attention to Reno Hill. Although Benteen is credited with organizing a defensive position that successfully held off a harrowing attack that continued throughout the night of the 25th and the morning of the 26th, both he and Reno would spend the rest of their lives defending their actions at the Little Bighorn. Eventually, with rumors of Gibbon and Terry's approaching column confirmed by scouts, the massive encampment decided to disengage and head west toward the Bighorn Mountains. It was four days after the battle that any tribal celebrations were undertaken. Gibbon and Terry did not get to the site of the Little Bighorn battle until the 27th, their immediate goal the relief of Reno Hill. They spent the next day quickly burying bodies in shallow graves, and instead of pursuit, they, like Crook, withdrew all the way back to Terry's outpost at Fort Peasy, 50 miles away from the new native encampment. Both commanders were so shaken by the carnage of the battlefield and the terrified survivors of Reno and Benteen's command that they immediately suspended Phil Sheridan's summer offensive of 1876. As news of the defeat spread east, coinciding with prideful celebrations of the country's July 4th centennial, the American people were stunned to hear of the practically unbelievable magnitude of the U.S. military debacle. Like Pearl Harbor or 9-11, it first shocked and then outraged the nation. How could a bunch of veritable savages not only defeat but actually wipe out an entire cavalry detachment? Phil Sheridan exploited the angry reaction by deploying more troops to the region and also placed the agencies under the direct control of the military. By September, new envoys from Washington forced Red Cloud and other agency chiefs to relinquish rights to the Black Hills and the Powder River Valley. The government also threatened to relocate the agencies as far away as the desolate Oklahoma Territory. Although agency chiefs resisted these demands and threats, they were told that no provisions would be forthcoming unless an agreement was reached, an alternative that meant starvation. Many angered natives left the agencies during the fall of 1876. Throughout the summer, recognizing that the sheer size of its population made it a prominent target, the massive Lakota and Cheyenne detachment began to separate into disparate groups. The Ungpapa contingent under Sitting Bull eventually made its way to Canada, a temporary refuge. 
Many tribal members merely melted into the countryside in small groups, hoping to find enough sustenance and avoid detection by the U.S. military. Crazy Horse stayed in the vicinity of the Yellowstone River, his band now considerably smaller than the huge force that opposed Custer. All of these groups were pursued by another U.S. military commander, General Nelson Miles. As winter approached, news that General Crook was organizing a second pursuit column intended for a winter campaign was an additional ominous report. Crook left Fort Fetterman in mid-November with 2,100 men. Included were Oglala Lakota, specifically recruited as scouts, but also to spread the fundamental message that further resistance was futile. Only dialogue would allow for the continued establishment of viable agencies and access to traditional territory. Brutal winter conditions and continued military harassment threatened the resolve of all of the non-treaty fugitives. Crazy Horse's response to talk of dialogue or surrender was unity imposed by force. He and other warriors set their hopes on another battle that annihilated the pursuing Federals, but Crazy Horse's last armed conflict with the U.S. military occurred on January 8, 1877, at Wolf Mountain in southwestern Montana, an ineffectual draw that disillusioned many of Crazy Horse's most ardent adherents. A steady stream of defectors began to discuss negotiations or even left the encampment and headed to the agencies. By March, plagued by starvation and the deteriorating health of his wife, Blackshawl, Crazy Horse began to consider surrender seriously. Native envoys from Crook attempted to induce him by promising another reservation, at least in the vicinity of traditional Lakota territory. Encouraged by this gesture and with his wife's condition now dire, Crazy Horse finally agreed to come in. On May 6th, in a ceremony witnessed by hundreds of agency natives, he shook hands with the head of the agency, Lieutenant William Clark, and accompanied by an entourage including He Dog and Little Hawk. Red Cloud promised that Crazy Horse would be treated respectfully and that his wife would receive medical treatment, promises that were initially kept. Over the summer of 1877, the relationship between Crazy Horse, Crook, the agency administration, and even other native tribal leaders deteriorated. Officially, Crazy Horse had never formally surrendered, and he believed that if he promised to live in peace, he would be granted his own agency, a promise that Crook even discussed, most likely only to entice Crazy Horse to stop fighting. Both Red Cloud and Spotted Tail were prominent political leaders within their own agencies who feared and resented the attention and prominence bestowed upon Crazy Horse by his own following. All of the parties involved were concerned that Crazy Horse might also decide to flee the reservation and either renew hostilities or head to Canada to rejoin Sitting Bull. One other underlying aspect defining the U.S. military attitude towards Crazy Horse was a report previously prepared by William Clark under the direction of General Crook as to exactly how Custer was defeated and annihilated at the Little Bighorn. After interviewing many of the agency natives who were involved, one fundamental became clear. Crazy Horse led the largest contingent of warriors in the battle, over 200 Lakota, with many more Cheyenne choosing to follow him based on his reputation for both skill and luck in battle. By comparison, Crow King commanded 80 such men. 
Within official military circles at the highest levels, it was quite clear that Crazy Horse was not only an extremely charismatic and effective military leader, he was also chiefly responsible for the defeat and humiliation suffered at the Little Bighorn. By September, tension between Crazy Horse, other tribal leaders, and U.S. authorities reached a breaking point. False rumors that Crazy Horse was plotting to assassinate General Crook and a manufactured threat by a hostile interpreter who claimed that Crazy Horse had threatened to head north and fight until, quote, all of the whites are dead, prompted the Fort Robinson commander, Luther Bradley, to order him to appear at Fort Robinson to begin official surrender negotiations. Secretly, General Crook, directed by Sheridan, had already ordered Bradley to immediately arrest Crazy Horse and quickly convey him to Omaha for ultimate exile at Fort Jefferson in the Dry Tortugas, a remote, yellow-fever-infested hellhole 70 miles off of the coast of Key West, Florida. What was left of Crazy Horse's contingent was camped as far away as possible from the agency headquarters, and the official summons alarmed him so much that he immediately fled with a small group, including Blackshawl, to the Spotted Tail Agency. Suspecting that he might not return from Fort Robinson, Crazy Horse wanted to situate his wife as closely as possible to her relatives within Spotted Tail's band. He also conferred with a seven-foot-tall comrade he had known since childhood, appropriately named Touch the Clouds. When Bradley heard that Crazy Horse was gone and now at Spotted Tail, he immediately sent Lieutenant Jesse Lee, an agency official who was on good terms to retrieve him. Unlike most of the agency officials who were now adamant in their hostility to Crazy Horse, Lee hoped to negotiate a sit-down in which Crazy Horse could patch up the situation and remain at the agency. He was not privy to the actual plan for arrest. Lee arrived at the Spotted Tail Agency on the evening of September 4th. He convinced Crazy Horse that returning to Fort Robinson was his best and only course of action. Crazy Horse did not have much of a choice. Underlining the animosity between the two tribal leaders, Spotted Tail, actually Crazy Horse's uncle, informed him that it was his reservation, and he did not want his nephew's presence there to set off violence. Reluctantly, Crazy Horse and a small group, including Lee, and Touch the Clouds, headed back to Fort Robinson on September 5th. On horseback, the group was joined by an ever-increasing number of agency natives who were adherents of Red Cloud and intent on ensuring that Crazy Horse did not flee. When he arrived in the company of 80 of the Red Cloud contingent, it must have been clear to Crazy Horse that he was a prisoner and no longer exercising his free will. Still, desperately hoping to convene some kind of process that would allow Crazy Horse to avoid arrest, Lee wanted to appeal to Bradley personally to allow him to hear out the Lakota's desire to merely transfer to the Spotted Tail Agency and live in peace. The first officer the small party interacted with in front of the fort's administrative office was Lieutenant Frederick Calhoun. Calhoun's brother James, the brother-in-law of George Custer, was killed at the Little Bighorn. Calhoun brusquely informed Lee that he was to turn over Crazy Horse to the officer of the day, Captain James Kennington. Lee asked if Crazy Horse could speak with Bradley before Kennington officially took charge of the ostensible prisoner. Calhoun grudgingly agreed to allow Lee to make that request of Bradley himself. Crazy Horse was led into the administrative office and given a chair. 
he was still surrounded by a few supporters, including Touch the Clouds. As Lee made his way across the parade ground, the area was already crowded with many of the 800 soldiers of the garrison, lining up in formation and preparing for any conflict. By the minute, hundreds of natives were also making their way to this spot, many clandestinely armed supporters of Crazy Horse who had heard rumors of his impending arrival and arrest. Lee had a heated exchange with Bradley, even arguing with him after he was informed that Crazy Horse was to be conveyed to the guardhouse and arrested. Ordered to comply, Lee left Bradley's office and made his way back to Crazy Horse. There, unable to admit the truth, he told the Native Party that a meeting with Bradley wasn't possible then, but that he should go with Captain Kennington, who would guarantee his safety. In his final moments of freedom, nervous and bewildered, Crazy Horse accepted the hand of Kennington, who began to lead him to Fort Robinson's jail within the guardhouse. Lee facilitated this process by explaining to Touch the Clouds and the others that they should stay with Crazy Horse overnight, and hopefully a meeting with Bradley could happen the next day. Lee did not have the heart or the courage to admit that he knew that this would never happen. As Crazy Horse emerged, he was joined by Little Big Man, an Oglala who fought with him at the Little Bighorn and also surrendered with him. Since internment, Little Big Man had earned a reputation for wanting to please the agency hierarchy, and his behavior in the next few minutes underlined that perspective. He took the other arm of Crazy Horse, and as the trio walked the 20 yards to the jailhouse, he repeated verbal reassurance of support. A crowd of natives gathered near the guardhouse door, demarcated by those hostile to Crazy Horse, including Red Cloud and others sympathetic to their formerly prominent warrior. Touch the Clouds and some of his group remained outside of the guardhouse as Crazy Horse, Kennington, Little Big Man, and several other natives friendly to Crazy Horse walked up the porch steps and entered, a sentry armed with a rifle and 18-inch bayonet permitting them to pass. The guardhouse had two rooms, a receiving area and a door that led to the actual jail cell. When the door was opened, Crazy Horse was able to observe prisoners chained and behind bars. One of his comrades yelled, It's the jail! Turn back! The realization that he was about to be confined suddenly became clear to Crazy Horse. In anticipation, both Kennington and Little Big Man attempted to restrain him, but he escaped their grasp and lunged for the front door. From under the red blanket he was wearing, he produced a six-inch blade he typically used to cut tobacco, and as Little Big Man grabbed him by both elbows, Crazy Horse cut a deep gash into his wrist. The two continued to grapple in the doorway, and Crazy Horse's blanket fell to the ground. Other natives attempted to restrain him, but he continued to thrash wildly as Kennington finally drew his saber. The captain quickly realized that the crush was too great, and he began shouting repeatedly to the sentry, Stab the son of a bitch! Like much of Crazy Horse's life, what happened in the next few seconds is controversial, but the result was undeniable. Clearly injured by something, Crazy Horse yelled, Let me go! You've got me hurt now! His assailants released their grip, and he groaned, staggered, and fell to the ground. Although official accounts would initially maintain that Crazy Horse stabbed himself with his own knife and then claimed he accidentally was pushed against the bayonet of the sentry, his injury indicated otherwise. In an interview conducted over 50 years later on the Pine Ridge Reservation, he dog, as close a comrade to Crazy Horse as any Oglala and thus allowed to kneel next to him, stated that he observed two wounds, one in the small of the back 
and the other much more serious underneath the ribcage, almost piercing Crazy Horse completely. He Dog also stated that a large blue swelling was already visible in the back at the point where the bayonet reached its deepest penetration. Other witnesses saw blood flowing from the mouth and nostrils. As soldiers moved forward from the parade ground toward Crazy Horse, both native factions produced concealed firearms. Captain Kennington did not help the situation by ordering that Crazy Horse be picked up and removed to the guardhouse. As Crazy Horse's armed adherents moved forward, a native scout, Baptiste Poirier, implored the captain that if he insisted, a gunfight would break out and anyone nearby would be killed. Bradley, observing from a safe distance, ordered that the still writhing Crazy Horse be removed to the adjutant's office, a result that diffused the immediate situation, most of the crowd unable to observe what actually happened. The injured warrior was placed on his blanket and carried into the administrative office. Although an army cot was available, Crazy Horse insisted that he be put on the ground. There, he was examined by an agency doctor, Valentine McGillicuddy. Understanding that Crazy Horse was slowly bleeding to death, he administered morphine intravenously, stopping the chief's agony. Night fell upon the agency. The parade ground deserted. Only Captain Kennington, an officer of the guard, and an interpreter remained as an official presence touched the clouds, and his son, charging first, were also admitted. Eventually, Crazy Horse's father, Waglula, and one of his stepmothers, Red Moccasins, arrived at the agency and found their son. Waglula asked how he was doing. Crazy Horse replied stoically, I am hurt bad. I am going to die. Tell the people they cannot depend on me anymore. With that, Waglula, Red Moccasins, and touched the clouds began to weep. In the next few hours, Crazy Horse drifted in and out of consciousness. His father spoke about his son. He had never wanted to fight, but he was attacked in his own village and pursued on his own land. He had no choice. He did not want to live on the white man's agency, eating the white man's food and beef. He wanted to live in his own way and hunt buffalo, but they promised to keep hunting him until he came in, and so he did. And Spotted Tail and Red Cloud objected to his prominence and the attention that he got. Their jealousy was what resulted in his son now lying on the ground. Crazy Horse died without any last words at approximately 11 p.m. on September 6, 1877. As his parents prostrated themselves and wailed at the side of the body, still on the bare floor of the office, Touch the Clouds commented, It is good. He has looked for death, and it has come. Waglula immediately began the process of mourning for his son. He transported the body to the Spotted Tail Agency and placed it above ground on an elevated spot near the agency where it reposed for five weeks. He also reassumed the name of his son, and after that was known as Crazy Horse the Elder. Previously, orders from Washington decreed that both Lakota agencies would have to begin the process of relocating to a new location 200 miles to the east near the Missouri River. During this relocation, many of the Oglala chiefs and their followers fled the column and disappeared, intent on reaching Canada. The remaining natives, led by Red Cloud, eventually were able to settle in 1878 near Pine Ridge, South Dakota. Today this location remains the tribal headquarters of the Oglala Lakota. Crazy Horse Sr., with his family and Blackshawl, accompanied Red Cloud's group 
but he eventually settled at another reservation in South Dakota, the Brule Agency at Rosebud. Throughout the journey, it was known that the Travois, or twin-pole triangular sled that natives used to transport possessions contained the body of Crazy Horse, the family unsure of their final destination. But when Crazy Horse's relatives arrived at the Rosebud, the bundle that was supposedly his remains was revealed to be nothing but rags. The body was intentionally hidden somewhere along the journey. While Crazy Horse's descendants told conflicting stories about what happened, his father is believed to have honored his son's wishes that his final resting place remain hidden, untouched by the white man or his native rivals, and with no memorial. Several burial locations have been mentioned, most frequently a spot near Wounded Knee Creek on the Pine Ridge Reservation, but the actual site remains a mystery. Crazy Horse Sr. died in 1880. Blackshaw lived until 1927. Although the personal suffering of Crazy Horse ended at Fort Robinson, the persecution of the Lakota did not. Sitting Bull and his band eventually found life in Canada too harsh and returned to the U.S., surrendering formally on July 19, 1881. Although he gained worldwide celebrity touring with Annie Oakley and Buffalo Bill Cody in the mid-80s, he was eventually prevented from continuing this endeavor by administrators at the Standing Rock Reservation, where he officially resided. Like Crazy Horse, Sitting Bull was considered an irritant and a potential threat to foment native violence and defiance, especially after the 1887 passage of the Dawes Act, federal legislation designed to nationally confiscate and subdivide reservation and tribal lands, especially within the Great Plains. Relations deteriorated further between Sitting Bull and the supervising agent at Standing Rock, James McLaughlin, when McLaughlin believed that Sitting Bull would become an advocate of the ghost dance movement, a native phenomenon that advocated that its practice would summon the dead ancestors of tribal members and erase the white man and his presence from the native world. White settlers and members of the U.S. military were alarmed by the movement and eventually Sitting Bull's arrest was ordered when he refused to stop other tribal members from participating in the ritual. After Indian police allied with the agency attempted in the early morning hours of December 15, 1890, to arrest Sitting Bull at his cabin, a firefight occurred and he was shot to death. Other Lakota, fearing reprisals from the native police after the violence killed some of their members, attempted to flee to the safety of the Pine Ridge Reservation. Led by Chief Spotted Elk, a.k.a. Bigfoot, this detachment included as many as 300 men, women, and children. Intent on imposing authority over what was considered an unsanctioned departure from the reservation, a detachment of the 7th Cavalry was ordered to intercept the native contingent before it could reach Pine Ridge. Escorted to an existing campsite near Wounded Knee, South Dakota, on the evening of December 28th, the cavalry then attempted to disarm the natives on the following morning. This quickly turned into a deadly confrontation, and the cavalry, having surrounded the encampment and strategically positioned Hotchkiss machine guns, began indiscriminately mowing down as many natives as possible. Gunshots were so undisciplined that 25 federal soldiers were killed, mostly by friendly fire. No specific number of native victims has ever been substantiated, but most of the 300 natives 
Many unarmed elderly men, women, children, and even infants perished. Due to extreme cold, it would be three days before civilian contractors buried the frozen bodies of the dead, including 66-year-old pneumonia-afflicted spotted elk, a longtime advocate of peace and tribal adoption of an agricultural reservation existence. He, as well as all of the other victims, were tossed into a mass grave that went unmarked for 13 years. Aside from a brief skirmish that immediately followed this incident, the massacre at Wounded Knee was the final armed conflict between the Lakota and the U.S. government. By the dawn of the 20th century, the Lakota had lost their homelands, their traditional way of life, and even the massive herds of millions of buffalo that were reduced to only hundreds. But the tribes themselves survived and never lost their strong traditions and reverence for their ancestors. Of these, Crazy Horse is among the most revered. His bravery, battlefield success, rejection of oncoming civilization, unmitigated defiance of the U.S. government and military, and even his refusal to be photographed ultimately transformed him into a Lakota cultural icon and an American legend. Although they have endured immeasurable mistreatment and indignity, the Lakota still remained defiant, exchanging war clubs and Remingtons for attorneys and lobbyists in ongoing lengthy litigation over the Black Hills that has yielded a judicial award that totals over a billion dollars, but that the tribes have refused to accept. Taking the money would legally end any future compensation or discussion of the return of federal land. A federal court opinion written in 1975 concerning this litigation stated, A more ripe and rank case of dishonorable dealings will never, in all probability, be found in our history. Although Crazy Horse has no gravesite or tomb, if he did, these words would serve as an appropriate epitaph. Thank you for listening to part two of this podcast about Crazy Horse. Much of the information for this podcast came from the books Crazy Horse, A Lakota Life by Kingsley Bray and The Killing of Crazy Horse by Thomas Powers. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Also rate us on iTunes, and if you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website.